Hey, what's up, guys? This is your host, Dan Giffen. Just want to say thank you for checking out the podcast. I've had random people hitting me up lately and saying they love the podcast. It means a lot to me that you guys are out there listening. Love to hear your thoughts and comments. If you have ideas for new podcast episodes or just to say hey, free to shoot me an email. It's dan at liveproducersonline.com. Love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, ideas, whatever. Also, if you are an Instagrammer like myself, there is the Live Producers Online Instagram account. I would love to hang out with you there. Just go to at Live Producers Online. Or if you're a Facebook kind of person, that's cool too. You can check out that page and we posting more tips and tricks and be doing some Instagram live stuff. So it's a good way to connect with me if you want to. I have been doing webinars with my website, liveproducersonline.com. For only $10 a month, you can support me and also learn tips and tricks in Ableton Live on a variety of different topics. Uh, I recently just gave one away for free. It's about the basics of mixing in Ableton Live. I walk through EQing and saturation and compression and tips and tricks that I've learned over the years using Ableton's tools and other third-party plugins out there. So if you're interested in checking that out, go to liveproducersonline.com slash free mixing webinar. So it's just liveproducersonline.com slash free mixing webinar and check that out. Yeah, it's about 40 minutes long because there's nothing more depressing than making a great song and having it sound like crap. Today's podcast episode I'm really excited about. It's uh, with Craig Anderton. Dude's amazing. This is probably one of the most fun times I've had on the podcast. This guy's really great. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. Much love, everyone. Well, you know, a lot of uh, a, a lot of people think that that um, that they should be able to just sit down at a DAW and make it work because they know computers, you know, <laughs> and. I've never, I don't know anybody who goes to Guitar Center, buys a Stratocaster and a Mel Bay Method book, comes back a week later and says, hey, I don't play like Jimi Hendrix, the Stratocaster sucks. As a guitarist has to practice scales, you need to practice your DAW. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Ableton Music Producer Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Giffen. And today we have Craig Anderton with us. And Craig is an internationally recognized musician. He's a journalist. Uh, he's written some great books. He's an expert in the music technology industry. Uh, he's played on, produced, and mastered over 20 major label recordings. Uh, like I said, he's authored a lot of books, and he's written some great articles. Uh, he has an awesome blog on craiganderton.com. Go check that out. Uh, Craig, thanks for being with us today, man. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. And, and by the way, I worked on the manual for Ableton Live too. So yes, yes. And I, I remember you mentioning that to me when we first met at GearFest a few months ago, and I was blown away. I was like, "Oh wow, that's awesome!" I mean, you you jumped in the game way before I did when it comes to an Ableton user, which is always respectable. Well, I've been using it since version 1.0, so um, that's yeah, it's it's a great program. I you know, it's not the only program I use, but it's the only program I use for live performance. Yeah. I uh, saw your presentation at Craigslist and I marched up to you, or not Craigslist, at a gear fest. And I marched up to you afterwards and I was like, Craig, I loved what you had to say. You uh, talked about modern so songwriting workflow, which I thought was really cool. Talked a little bit about the psychology behind songwriting. You've obviously worked on a lot of music and a lot of tracks. I'm all about the psychology of music. Uh, you know, innovative tips for just working faster is always helpful for producers and musicians and songwriters. Uh, so I kind of wanted to spend some time today talking to you about your process behind that and tips that you have for our listeners. Um, but before we dive in and nerd out about all that good stuff, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started with music and 
real quick. How did that lead you to where you are today? Oh boy. Well, that's, that's the least interesting part because what's happening now <laughs> is the most interesting part. But no, when I, when I was 10 years old, um, uh, I saw Andre Segovia play and, uh, I just was blown away by the guitar and I wanted to learn how to play guitar. So, uh, for my 10th birthday, I got a guitar and I got a transistor radio kit and that set my life in stone <laughs> going forward. Nice. Um, I, during my teenage years, I was in a band called Mandrake back in the sixties and did the whole touring thing and albums and, and all that. And I, we got just famous enough that I realized that that's not what I wanted to do. So, um, after that, I became a session musician in New York, did a lot of work there, did some production and also got very involved in electronics. And that's where the book electronic projects for musicians happened. Then I got into recording and one thing led to another, um, did a lot of production work in the eighties, a lot of engineering. And, uh, in the nineties, uh, well, of course I, I also co-founded electronic musicians, started that magazine. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, fast forward to the turn of the century, I was doing a lot of work over in, in Germany a lot of, uh, live performance with DJs, but I was on guitar. So that was interesting. I was, I was syncing everything up to MPCs and using mm -hmm. the adrenaline. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, so I have a legitimate interest in the whole live Ableton type of, you know, the mindset, the loops and things like that and done loop libraries. And I mean, there's been a lot of detours along the way, but, um, and, the, and meanwhile, here I am, you know, I have always been independent. I, I, were, I did, I did have an actual job at one point. I worked at Gibson, uh, for four and a half years and learned oh, more nice. about it. Yeah. I learned a huge amount about guitars. I mean, it was, it was sort of like going to graduate school. Yeah. Um, but now I'm back to doing the, you know, the writing consulting type of thing. I do work with a lot of manufacturers about how to, how to use their gear. So that's where a lot of these tips come from. Sure. Yeah. I've seen a lot of endorsements on your website with like Alesis and some other ones. And there's a lot of really good brands out there that I know you've bumped shoulders with. I would be terrified working for a manufacturer like Gibson or as a drummer for like DW, because I feel like my entire paycheck would just go back to them. <laughs> well, you know, it's, um, it's a different, it was a different kind of situation in Gibson because at the time they had a lot of different divisions and I was involved in with all of them on some level, you know, with mm -hmm. the speakers, with, with Karake and all that. But mm -hmm. the other thing is that, um, what I do is not really endorsements. It's much more along the lines of, um, my, my boss are the people who read my stuff, you know, not the companies. Right. And, yeah. and what I'm finding out about a lot of companies is that they just want you to tell what's really happening. They don't want you to go out there and say, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. Oh, mm -hmm. I love it so much. They, they, mm -hmm. What they want me to do is say, here's how I use it. Here's what it's good for. Here's, here's what to do with it to make it make the kind of sounds you want. That's what they mm -hmm. really want out of things, which is very comfortable for me, you know? Yeah. It's like, I mean, every time I go into the studio, it's, I'm basically doing R and D. So that's a, uh, you mm. know, yeah. <laughs> that, that's not bad either. That's a great job. Yeah, for sure. You can wake up every day and play with new musical toys and make a living out of that. That's a great day. That's mm -hmm. a great day. Well, let's kind of dive in a little bit to your presentation that you had at, at GearFest. Uh, you, you shared some really awesome songwriting workflows and tips. I know that we could sit here and talk about gear for endless amount of days. Uh, which I, maybe we'll do another time. But um, yeah, I loved what you talked about with the, the psychology of music and you kind of started off with that in your presentation. One thing you mentioned was about how the, the brain processes data in two ways related to music. You talked about like the left and the right side of the brain. And you, you mentioned that the left brain does not, it's not part of the songwriting itself. It's, it's more about like prototyping the songs, not producing them. I thought that was, that's very true. That's interesting. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, actually, um, 
I'm less interested in talking about gear because gear is relatively unimportant, you know, in the in in the process. What ultimately you have to look at what your desired result is, and the desired result is to have an emotional impact on the listener. You know, the listener. Uh, one of the things I said at the seminar was no radio station ever called me up and said, you know, we were going to play your CD, but you used a solid state mic preamp. You know, they just <laughs> they just don't do that. But in terms of in terms of the hemisphere thing, okay, so you know. One is constantly improving one's craft and one's art. I mean, otherwise, what's the point of doing it? And I've always been looking for that holy grail of how to have creativity go as smoothly as possible into something finished. Mm. And lately, um, I've really made some progress along those lines. I'm now doing songs that in, in, in I'll, I'll have an entire song blocked out in an evening and finished in a couple days and and you know, mixed and mastered within a week. And this is very unusual for me. And a lot of it is because I have been analyzing what goes into the creative process. And what's paramount is to be able to work rapidly. So when there's an inspiration, you have to be able to really run with it right then and there. You can't get hung up on, you know, fixing your computer or rebooting things or whatever. Right. Uh, and the other thing is that you want to just keep going while you're in that zone. And the reason why that's so important is of why, how the brain processes information. There are two hemispheres in the brain, the right hemisphere, the left hemisphere. The right hemisphere is more about um, colors and images and emotions and things like that, whereas the, the left side of the brain, which is controlled by the right hand, uh, is more analytical. So the analogy I use is that the, the right brain is, is a Macintosh GUI and the left brain is MS-DOS, you know? <laughs> um, that's, that's a fair analogy, yeah. That makes sense. So... You need them both, you know, but the thing is, is that what, what, what's interesting from a creative standpoint is once you're in one side of the brain, it's hard to switch over to the other one. Mm. So you can be in your right brain mode, you know, you have, some, you have some great idea for a song, some great groove going, and you're really in the heat of creativity, and then something happens that causes you to switch over to the left brain, like you get a phone call, or there's a problem with the computer, or, you know, you have to repatch things or whatever, mm. and now when you try to go back, into that creative space it's gone yeah you know and that's um that that is the the biggest problem uh, i think in terms of the songwriting process so there's there's two approaches you have to take one is to have as smooth and efficient a setup as humanly possible and i went through a lot of the the details there i mean one of the things that i always say is your interface should have way more inputs than you ever think you'll need so that everything can be patched up all the time and you never have mm -hmm. to use a patch bay. I have no patch bay in my studio. Yeah. Uh, if, if I want to record something, I record, enable a track, it's ready to go, the levels are set, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that we're using, uh, the, the beautiful thing about DAWs is that they're nonlinear. So if you have a great idea for a chorus, you can work on the chorus, you know? And if you have mm -hmm. a great idea for a lead line, you can put that, you know, five minutes down the timeline and bring it in when you want it. Yeah. Um, and I've sometimes, sometimes I'll have like some really, you know, a song will start with a chorus and I'll work on the chorus. I'll do the vocal, I'll put on a bass line, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. And then after hearing that enough times, it almost suggests a verse and then I'll work on the verse. And mm -hmm. it all is a very smooth, continuous process. And that's how the mm -hmm. song gets blocked out in an evening. That makes perfect sense. I can, I can totally speak to that from experiences, having my Moog already run into my Apollo and my vocal mic and like a line for my bassist and everything else just ready to go. And uh, yeah, I find that I, I call that process when it's blocked 
um, like musical constipation. It's like mm-hmm. you you have this moment where like you you have that burst of inspiration and creativity, as you were saying. And for me personally, and I think a lot of other people, there's a very small window of where that's going to live. Um, and then once it passes, it's it's hard to get back into that zone, for sure. Well, exactly. It's um, I mean, and one thing uh, to me, the muse is a real thing. You know, it's not it's not just an abstract concept. To me, there the muse is a, is a real idea. There is something that that comes and takes over, and mm-hmm. that if you if you respect it and honor it and and work with it and don't let it get impatient, you can keep you know you can keep doing it. Yeah. Um, so I mean that that's something that that does matter. You know. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, one one other thing about the the left brain, right brain thing. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a nerve highway between the two hemispheres called the corpus callosum, and it's thicker in musicians than than in most people, which really? to me imply yeah, which is interesting because we are constantly shifting back and forth between the two. I mean, music mm. is mathematical at its heart, and but the ability to stay in a hemisphere is important and. One of the one of the questions people ask me a lot is, you know, there's music from the '50s and the '60s and the '70s that, that that's immortal. You know, this is this is the first time that I can think of a generation not rejecting the music of its parents. You know, I, I mean, I see I see people are teenagers; they're they're listening to ACDC, they're listening to Led Zeppelin. You know, yeah, yeah. and I mean that has not gone away. Yeah. And or Buddy Holly, for that matter. I mean, Buddy Holly Holly is still current, and look how you know he's. What that's almost fifty years old. Yeah, more than fifty years old. Um, so you know, people think, oh, you know, it must be the console, or it must be that they use vacuum tubes, or it must be you know this or that. I think that the reason why those things were classics, aside from the fact that they were collaborative in nature, um, the artist got to stay in the right brain the whole time. You know, they didn't have to worry about aligning the tape recorder or rewinding the tape. The engineer took care of that. The engineer lived mm. in the left brain the whole time. And the producer who made the most money off the projects had to live in both, had to be able to jump between both hemispheres. And that's yeah. a difficult thing to do. And that's what makes a good producer, that they can listen to something and uh, gauge the emotional impact of it and also gauge the technical merits of it. Yeah. So I think that that, that kind of workflow and that, that way of working promoted better music and, and more emotional music and the ability to do it faster. We have all heard the stories about, you know, Beatles albums being cut in a week or whatever. And mm-hmm. so that's why it's so important to have a setup where essentially it's self-engineering, you know, mm-hmm. keyboard, keyboard shortcuts, uh, markers you can jump between. Being yeah. really familiar with your DAW means you can engineer without having to think about it. Yeah. Man, that's really, I could not have said that better myself. That was really well put. Um, obviously, you've been doing this a while. One thing, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners here kind of have to wear all those hats. They're, they are now the, the engineer and the producer and the musician. It seems like there's a lot of those out there now that people are all in the box and in the doll with like technology as it's evolved since those times back in the day. Yeah, I, I think one thing I, I tell students that I've taught and, you know, my experience is being able to kind of develop that muscle memory, so to speak, where you get to the point of where you do all the left brain work. So you actually know how to get the results when the right brain is kicking in with the creativity. So, you know, it's like doing your homework. If you don't know how to use the doll really well, you know, it, it's not, you can lose those moments of inspiration where that muse kicks in. And so I find the more practice I do with like my left brain of maybe what some people would say is like the 
boring agonizing work of like learning the doll and like practicing and making absolute crap you know <laughs> and like once you have that right brain creativity kick in you have that muscle memory so to speak to where you can start getting those results really quickly and being able to you know bust out music faster like you were saying well you know a lot of uh, a, a lot of people think that that um that they should be able to just sit down at a door and make it work because they know computers you know <laughs> and i've never I don't know anybody who goes to Guitar Center, buys a Stratocaster and a Mel Bay Method book, comes back a week later and says, hey, I don't play like Jimi Hendrix, the Stratocaster sucks. You know, right. it, just doesn't, right. it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. What people just don't, a lot of people just don't understand is that today's DAW sitting in that computer is equivalent to like a, a million dollar studio a couple of years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, all those instruments, all those synchronization options and busing and routing and preamps and the backline and the compressors, and you've got all these signal processors you need to learn and virtual instruments and all that. Mm -hmm. It's an awful lot. I, I say to people, it's very much as if you walked into record plant in 1969 and the engineer said, hey, I've got great news and I've got bad news. The great news, I'm only charging you $2 an hour to use the studio. The bad news is no one's going to be here. Here are the keys. Good luck. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, pe yeah. people would be totally lost and, and they're mm -hmm. lost a lot with DAWs. So just yeah. as, as a guitarist has to practice scales, you need to practice your DAW. I spend mm -hmm. one of the, one of the really fortunate aspects of my gig is that I do a tip every Friday for Presonus for the Presonus blog about using studio one. And I also do a monthly column for Sound on Sound about Cakewalk. So I'm essentially getting paid to learn the programs, which yeah. is a really which is a really good deal. So I'll, awesome. go, I'll go deep into rabbit holes. And but the other thing is that when I go deep into those rabbit holes, I'm always recording because you never know when inspiration is going to strike. And there have been so many times that I've been like working on the DAW and being like totally uh, you know, totally left brain and trying to learn something new. And I'm playing guitar or keyboards or coming up with the synth patch and massive or you know whatever yeah and all of a sudden like it's like wow i like that and instantly i'm in my right brain and i'm gone you know it's yeah. like i can i can finish the article later yeah um so you need to be sensitive to those moments i mean that's that's another thing um so many times when people get into into, into a creative block uh you know oh what can i do just do anything just, just sit down and play. You can't go mm -hmm. wrong by playing. Some, right. Something will happen. It might be good, might be bad, might be indifferent. I'm yeah. not one of those people who you know, writes 50 songs and two of them are good and I work on those. Pretty much everything I start, I actually finish and turn into a song because, uh -huh. because I'm not being conscious about it. I'm not trying to write a song. It comes to me and I just, just go with it. Yeah. Yeah, I find when I have more of a playful mentality where i'm not trying to write a hit so to speak uh my best work comes out where it's it's really just almost playing for the sake of the love of it and having fun rather than trying to force it you know i i find that i write better that way when i'm not overthinking things and i'm just enjoying the moment i've never made more music and i've never had more fun playing music than i am right now I mean, I mean, I loved being on, I looked when, when I was doing 200 live dates a year, I loved being on stage. I, I loved that, you know, two hours of being on stage, but all the stuff in between, <laughs> it's yeah, really, you yeah. know, all the traveling and then the, you no know, and sleep and yeah. the, the legalities, the accounting, the, the maintenance, mm -hmm. you know, just, just all that stuff is, is, is just not fun, yeah. you know, but, but the other thing is that 
Okay, let me just get off on a little bit of a tangent here, which is... Go for it. I really think that we're entering a golden age of like personal music. Because if you think about it mm. for a second, music has only been... We've only been capable of freeze-drying music and reconstituting it later for like 130 years or so. Before recording, all music was transitory. It was ephemeral. If you missed Beethoven's third, you missed Beethoven's third. Hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. you just that—that's just the way it was. You weren't going to go online and hear it. It wasn't going to be leaked with an MP3. It was—it existed for that moment, um, right? And and so, it's a novelty, we, really. It, it music has always been a a personal thing. I mean, people play instruments yeah. because they like to play instruments. Before TVs became so popular, every home, well, not every home, but most homes had a piano, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. People played guitars. School taught you how to do things. And yeah. it's only it only became warped into this concept of being a business in the 60s and, and actually less in the 60s, but in the 70s and 80s, it really became like, oh, this is a way to make money. This is a gig, you know? And, and the emphasis got off the fact that it's a voyage of personal discovery. It's a creative thing, you know? And so, like, I see people, I see the old guard, basically, um, mm. you know, looking at people with Ableton Live in, on a laptop in their bedrooms, and they sort of go, oh, look at the kids pushing buttons with Ableton Live in a bedroom, <laughs> you know? And it's like, no, man, this is like, they're, they're discovering music. They're like really having a good time. They're becoming lifers in this, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and so the, the thing is, and, well, they'll never make any money at it. Well, they won't make any money if they like fishing or bowling or going to the <laughs> movies or anything it's else, you know? It's true. It's, and and I'll tell you, the process of making music for me, every time I do a song, it's like a Rorschach, you know? I see myself coming back at me. I learn so much about myself, and I have such an interesting time doing it that even if, if someone came to me and said, no one else will ever hear your music ever again, I would still keep doing it just the same, you know? That, to me, it's, about, it's, a, it's a personal thing. Yeah. And, I'm glad, and I'm glad to see it's getting back to that. And I'm, I'm thrilled yeah. That somebody can go on YouTube and get a hundred subscribers, you know. I mean, that's great. I, sure. I don't, I don't, I don't look down at that at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I have the same mentality as you, and that is, uh, you know, I, I think when you start to take something as creative and expressive and as vulnerable as music, and you're putting it out there as yourself, I mean, that's not really easy to do when you start out because it is a big piece of who you are. Um, you know, you create something, you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into make something that you're proud of, or you think you're going to be proud of, and you put it out there. It can be a little, it can be a little scary, like invulnerable, and and it's therapy in the end of the day. Like for most people, like music really is therapy above all else. Um, and yeah, yeah it's, it's what you have to do. I mean, a lot of times people come up to me after seminars. It's like, hey, you know what? What can I do to be successful? And my answer is always. You have to be yourself. And the reason why is because the odds of syncing up with the rest of the population to where they all love you is incredibly remote. Yeah. But if you're yourself and people like what you do, mm -hmm. then you have a guaranteed career because you're not using artifice. You're not using focus groups. You know, you're not, you're not making yeah. up stuff. You are who you are. People like who you are and they'll love it. If on the other hand, you're always calculating and trying to think, oh, what should I do? Or should I, you know, should I be like this? Or should I try to be like this or whatever? Right. Then you're basically doomed. You may get one hit out of it, but you won't have a career. Yeah, that's good. You know, it took me a while to actually start sharing my music when I first got started. 
like on social media with my friends. It was almost like, well, I've got to create this page and have this huge image. It's like, no, just share it with people that mean a lot to you and see if they like it and they'll share it and then see what happens from there, you know? And well, I got I to gotta tell you something that happened to me at age 18, which was the most valuable thing ever. Uh, I was doing a concert in Philadelphia and back then they had, you know, morning and afternoon papers. And we, we did this concert and when the reviews came out, one of the paper, one of the papers just slashed it to ribbons. They thought it was horrible. It was this incredibly <laughs> negative review. The other oh, paper was incredibly positive. It was like, this is great. I've never heard it. This is so fantastic. And so, okay. But what was interesting to me was that they drew their judgments based on the same things. Like, for example, the negative one was like, so this group just got up and they played for an hour and a half and they didn't inter interact with the audience or anything. You know, it was kind of standoffish. <laughs> and the positive review is like, thank God they just went up there and played music. You know, they didn't they didn't say, oh, Philadelphia. And, yeah. and, and when I was playing the synthesizer, this was back in 68, I guess. Yeah, so I was playing a synthesizer I'd made on stage. Negative view was like, and the worst part was when the guitar player sat down at this box and made these sounds. <laughs> and then the positive review was like, and the best part was when the guitar player went and made these sounds I'd never That's heard funny. before. That's so you know? funny. And to me, that was like the most valuable lesson ever, which was just put it out there because some people are going to hate it and some mm -hmm. people are going to love it. Yep. And so you do it for the people who love it and for the people who hate it, they've plenty of other things they can listen to. Yep. Haters will always hate. Just remember that. Yeah. There will always be haters. And, and they don't matter. No. No, they, <laughs> they really, really don't. don't. No, and they shouldn't. That's, that's really funny. That's true. And music's subjective. You know, it, it comes down to everybody has their own tastes and styles and interests and you know, you don't, the world doesn't need another dead mouse, you know, or whoever else there already is one. So, and, and even more, and even more so in the age of YouTube, I mean, it used to be with, you know, back, back in the day, uh, record companies would do like, you know, they want to find, oh, find me the next Springsteen, find me the next Prince or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. but now Prince and Springsteen are, are a click away, you know, it's like, it's yeah. like none of that, none of that stuff ever goes away now. So you have to be original, you have to be different mm -hmm. and you have to rise above the signal to noise ratio if you want to be successful. Right. But, you know, it, but the other thing is that when you're doing it yourself, you have no constraints. Like, so I do an album project every year and the one I did in 2016 was called Neo, and it was that was short for Neo Psychedelic Music for the 21st Century. And the, prem, and the premise was, if psychedelic music had never been invented, and someone did it now, what would it sound like? And then the one for 2017 was completely different. It was called Simplicity, and it was like all songs, they all told stories. Uh, the voice was up front, there was a lot of acoustic guitar, there was like even ukuleles, you know, things like that, but they weren't done in traditional ukulele style, of course. And it was the premise for that was like, okay, what if Buddy Holly had been born in 1995? You know, what kind of stuff would he do in the studio? Mm -hmm. And then the one for for 2018 was a continuous mix called Joie de Vivre, and it's like half EDM, half rock. It's like EDM meets rock. <laughs> and I know, it's, and I know it's successful because the EDM people say, "Oh man, it's too much like rock for me," and the rock people say, "Hey, it's too much like EDM for That's me." Funny. So the people like EDM and rock thinks it's fabulous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what I'm working on right now is a collection of singles where every song is completely different. I'm right now, I'm, the song I'm working on right now, what I was doing just before you called was I'm, I'm actually doing a cover version. I hardly ever do cover versions, hmm. but um, Brian Hardgrove from Public Enemy and, and I are, are going to be collaborating on walking on, uh, doing a collaboration of a cover version of Walking on the Moon. Very cool. And, and so I'm doing this version of walking on the moon and it, I'm like blocking it out. So we have a prototype to work from. 
And I really slowed the tempo down. It's got like really heavy guitar chords. I mean, it's a very different awesome. thing. So, yeah. you know, it's, and then, but the song before that was almost like a ballad. I mean, they're all, they're all different now. And I can do that. You know, that's a record company's nightmare. But for <laughs> me, but for me, it's an incredible amount of fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I've, I heard so many times when I first started making music, it was like, find your sound, be original, find your sound. But I was like, but what is my sound? You know, I, I used to like country music and then I got into like jazz and then I was like really into funk and then I really got into EDM and then I was into future bass and then I was into like indie rock and like it's just all over the place. And so I produced literally all of those genres. And now that I've done all of that, I look back for myself and I'm like, you know, I think I found my original sound because I've practiced all those different genres and I find little pieces of those that kind of suck out. And, and it's like, now I really know what I like to produce at this moment. And it'll probably change in the future too. Now, so, exactly. The thing about being involved in all those forms of music is that they inform what you're doing now. Like I was doing one song on the Simplicity album and it needed a guitar solo in it. And I thought, you know, I, I pulled out like a West Montgomery type of thing, you know, from my jazz days. And, uh, it's great. You know, I've also, I've also produced a lot of classical stuff. There's, um, there's a harpsichordist named Kathleen McIntosh, who's fabulous. Mm -hmm. And I close mic'd her harpsichord uh, instead of doing traditional harpsichord miking. And she loved the way that, that sounded. And, and we did an album of uh, Solaire, Sonatas, and also Bach. And um, the way that she plays it, it's not like a reverent museum piece thing. It's like Bach came over that day and said, Hey, Kathy, I got a new song. Check it out. You know, <laughs> That's cool. and she plays it. She plays it like it's so alive and vital. And when mm -hmm. you close mic it, when you, you know, when you know rock and roll piano miking techniques and you apply it to a harpsichord, all of a sudden the thing sounds contemporary and real and big. That's and awesome. Like, I want to hear that. I'd oh, send that to me eventually. I would love to hear that. Well, you know, send, give me your, uh, give me your address and I'll, and I'll send you a copy of the CD. Yeah, please do. That'd be really cool. I'm you know, always but, looking for new tricks like that. That just sounds fun. And, and non-conventional instruments are so fun to play with. Well, the ukulele stuff that I'm doing is, okay, here's how I got into ukulele. I was, Windows was doing an update, <laughs> you know, and it was like taking forever. And I had this ukulele that's been sitting around. God, I got it in France like years ago or something. Yeah. And I was just playing it. And all of a sudden, this song started coming out. And then I learned that, you know, if you mic it correctly and, you know, do interesting processing with it and you can, you know, you can throw anything on that, you throw on a guitar. And when people hear the music with the ukulele, they don't think it's a ukulele. They think it's like some ethnic instrument that I found or something, you know, because they're just mm -hmm. not used to hearing it used in that context. So mm -hmm. the classical stuff works its way into what I do. Like I do a lot of chord substitutions and, and things like on mm -hmm. this cover version of Walking on the Moon. There's a lot of chord substitutions in there, relative minors and things. Um, and cool. it's, you know, oh, and I'll tell you another, here was another thing. Brian and I did a project once called EV2, and it was a live performance project with just the two of us. And he played drums, and I played guitar. But the guitar that I had was a Gibson HD6X, which had every string available as a separate output. So I took the two bottom strings and put them through octave dividers, so I had bass. I took the top four strings and put them through a chorus, for kind of like an Andy Summers sort of awesome. thing. And then I had pickups that I, that I put through distortion. And because I, was, I started off on classical guitar, I played with my fingers so I could articulate bass and rhythm and leads at the same time on this guitar. And then we both put our vocals through Digitech Harmony things. So we sounded like a full band with just two people. That's but awesome. While, 
But what was really cool about it was that I didn't have to worry about having the keyboard player or the bass player follow along or anything. If I wanted to extend a solo or not extend a solo or switch songs or anything, as long as Brian could hear me, we were, we were good to go. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, that kind of experience is fantastic too. I mean, if I, uh, frankly, if, if I was given a choice that I could only be in the studio for the rest of my life or only play live for the rest of my life, I would choose playing live. Cause that's when you get to collaborate. That's when you get to interact mm -hmm. with an audience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm just now starting to play a lot more live than I ever have, and I love it. It's a great way to meet people and uh, find new artists that you potentially want to collaborate with in the future from other bands and musicians that you share the stage with. It's a lot of fun. Um, you know, I had a happy accident, kind of similar to what you're talking about with the guitar and all that crazy stuff. I, I was playing my electric drum kit, uh, my Roland, and I had an external instrument in Ableton already queued up and I had MIDI running through that and so I didn't even think about that that channel was armed and my Moog Sub 37 was running into it but the MIDI that was being played on my electric drum set was actually triggering notes from the Moog and I didn't even realize it and I ended up like playing some really crazy preset that was like queued up on my drums and it became like this really cool lead line for one of my songs like complete accident and uh I think that's one reason I love Ableton so much is just because it's full of happy accidents like that that I discover along the way. And any doll really, but like when you just have non-conventional ways of things happening, it's there's all kinds of results that can, you know, take you in a direction you never expected that's new and fresh and creative. Well, did you see did you see the um the seminar where I was doing the harmonic editing and, and playing the the one guitar chord over the EDM track? That wasn't the songwriting one I was in. I don't think. Yeah, that no, that's right. It was the second one. Okay, that, yeah. I mean that that was something. That was something kind of this harmonic editing stuff in Studio One is 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 mind blowing. Yeah, my my premise at the seminar was that anything sounds better with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you have an acoustic guitar in the background, any it's just spoken as helps. a true guitarist. <laughs> you know, it just. Yeah. I mean. So I, and I said, even EDM, you know, I said, EDM sounds great with an acoustic guitar. And people yeah. looked at me like, you know what? Yeah. I said, and so I said, but let's suppose you only know one chord. So yeah. I queued up this EDM track and I just played one chord all the way through. And of course it sounded terrible because it would be going through these chord changes and stuff like that. So I dragged the bass line up to the chord track in studio one. It parsed out what the chord progression was. And then I had the guitar follow that. So the guitar followed along with this chord progression, provided this driving sort of sound in the background, you know, and the fact that I could do that and then I can change the chords. Like if I want to go from a G to an E minor, I can just change it in the chord track. And it's not MIDI. We're talking about polyphonic audio here. I can play a part on a rhythm guitar and the polyphonic audio is actually program figures it out and says, oh, here's the chords you're playing. Mm. And, and you can take that and then you can do things like pitch drums. So, uh, especially if they're symbols and, you know, something that sustains like that. So what yeah. I'm finding between that and side chaining, which I'm also a big fan of doing with synths yeah. is, is you can actually have like three or four tracks, but it sounds huge because there's so much going on because they're so tightly synchronized, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's, that's another one of my, that's another one of my things, which I truly believe that every time you add a track, it diminishes the importance of the other tracks. So you really need to think about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, Ableton has some Max for Live instruments that do. Oh, they're amazing. Similar to that. Yeah. I mean, there was even, um, I've never tried it with guitar doing what you were talking about, but there's a creative extensions pack that has something called pitch and it actually pitch shifts the audio in real time, uh, which could probably do something similar. Yeah. The thing about Studio One that's different is it does it polyphonically. So it can mm -hmm. actually go inside like a C major chord on a guitar and turn into a G major seventh, mm, which gotcha. is really, which is really bizarre. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, when you're transposing like that, it does make some timbral, timbral differences, but that made it work better with the EDM, you know, yeah. because it had sort of this electronic edge to it. But Ableton, I mean, the thing about Ableton that to me is, is like the, the strongest thing about it are the scenes, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing about Ableton that I love is that everybody uses it differently. When That's I, true. you know, there yeah. was one time, there was one time I was in the, at the Frankfurt music show and I heard somebody was playing with Ableton live, you know, it was like one of the, one of the people there and they were making the same kind of music that I did, same kind of approach, same kind of like, like sound and everything. But when I looked over his shoulder, he did it in a completely different way. Yeah. I mean, completely different, but the end result was the same. I'm very much into, for live performance, I'm very much into having all loops, all the loops going all the time connected to a fader box. And then I bring the loops in and out and mix on an individual scene. Then I'll switch to another scene and then mm -hmm. I'll be mixing those in and out. So it may just start, mm -hmm. so the scene will, will have like 16 loops going. Yeah. But the scene will come on with only one or two loops. Then I'll start building stuff up and taking mm -hmm. it back and all that. So it's really more like a performing, uh, mixed down type of thing. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends, he's done some webinars with live producers online, my website, and uh, he uses CliffX Pro, if you've ever heard of CliffX, um, which is just basically a scripting language that hacks Ableton to basically do anything Ableton doesn't, doesn't already do. And he does some <laughs> he does some crazy live looping stuff in Session View that like I haven't really seen before. And he's just a mad scientist of, of Ableton hacking. So <laughs> yeah, but he did a CliffX X webinar on our website and uh recently i saw he was creating his own cliffx commands to do some looping that is just like crazy so yeah i mean you're right though everybody uses ableton differently in different ways and i think that's one thing that makes it so fun and and why i continue to want to be a learner above all else you know because there's always i think something that we can learn from other people just you know even even if you've been doing it 100 years or 10 years you know i think everybody has kind of their own approach and we can all just learn from each other and find new ways of doing the same thing, which is just fun. Well, you know, the other thing about Ableton that's intrigued me from a business standpoint is for many years, I mean, until push came along, they were really a one product company and yet they're, they're a powerhouse in the industry in terms of sales, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what, what they did, I mean, what they did is brilliant. They, they created a market and then have a hundred percent market share. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, Bitwig, you know? Bitwig really tried there for a little while, and I don't, I don't know how they're doing, but I tried playing with Bitwig for a little bit, and I just have to be honest, I wasn't the biggest fan. I was like, they tried to recreate Ableton, but Ableton works fine for me the way it is now. So. Well, Ableton's like SEO, you know, it has roots that go back to what, 2000, 2001, something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're into Ableton, you're into Ableton, you're, you're, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it, and it's. And, you know, there's a, there's a time I, there, there are two Ableton stories where, where I was talking with Gerhard. One was in, in version four, they were about to introduce MIDI. And I said, oh God, Gerhard, don't do that. <laughs> you know, people are going to want <laughs> event views and, and staff and notation, and it's going to be this yeah. and that. And Just stick and, to what you're doing now or what you're and, good at. And he, yeah. and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, 
don't worry, Craig, we do it the Ableton way. <laughs> and he did, you know, I think Mitty's really done, done really well in Ableton. And the oh, yeah. When, oh, yeah. When, when Seven came out, he said, hey, what do you think of all the new features? And I said, you know, I really don't want to insult you, but I only use a fraction, really, of what Ableton does because it does, that's exactly what I need to do. I know it really well. Live is a mm -hmm. great program. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I really haven't checked out some of these things. And I thought it would be kind of like, you know, I thought he would kind of, not angry, but I thought he'd be a little disappointed that I didn't go into it further. But yeah. instead, his attitude was like, that's perfect. You know, we give these we give these tools and people use different tools for different things, you know? Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, I've, I've heard the argument that, well, why wouldn't you just want to produce in the same DAW that you could perform in? But to be honest with you, I don't know too many people that start a project with a song finish that song in that project, mix and master the song in that same project, and then perform it live in that same project. That doesn't really happen. <laughs> like, not from what I see. Well, um, the, other, the other thing is that, I mean, Ableton Live, the audio engine just doesn't quit. I mean, the only, I, I joke with people, but it's really true. The only way to get it to crash is to take your laptop and drop it 10 feet onto a concrete floor. Right. And then, he, and then even then, the audio engine might still be going, even though the screen's <laughs> cracked, you know? You so, can I mean, hear it, yeah. I mean that and that and reason to me are, are like two of the, the most outstanding programs. Anything else is a risk live. I mean mm. I mean now granted, you know, uh, live there are there are compromises in order to obtain that audio engine. I get that. But they're not compromises that affect me for live performance and they're and they enable me to do live performance. I've never had a problem with it, you know, knock on wood. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of songwriting, I find Studio One to be fastest and most efficient by far it's like uh, you know it's like a sports car you know yeah ableton live is a ableton live is like a private jet and uh <laughs> you know studio one is like a sports car and, and cakewalks like an suv and okay. cubase and with cubase i mean the thing about cubase is you can do anything in cubase i mean if if, mm -hmm. if cubase can't do it it probably can't be done but trying to figure out how to do it you know you really have to get deep into that yeah. program yeah if, so, we're I mean, if we're talking about DAWs for transportation, in my mind, and I know people are going to hate me for this and I don't care, I, I see Pro Tools as like the Flintstones car. <laughs> it's like, it's well, been around for a really long time. Pro and, Tools, Pro Tools is, is like that big friendly dog that comes up and licks you but isn't too bright, you know, but it's, it's nice enough and, you know, it doesn't, doesn't poop on the floor too much. Right. And, yeah. Now, Pro, Pro yeah. Tool, look, Pro, Tool, Pro Tools is... I, you know, no, it's not my favorite program, but I get why people like it. And I'll mm -hmm. tell you, when, 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 when folks are first transitioning from two-inch tape to computers and they'd ask me what to do, I'd always say buy Pro Tools because the paradigm was so similar to what they were using, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, it, it's very easy to figure out. It, does, it still does the busing thing really well. Right. The other thing about Pro Tools is they take forever to do stuff, but when they do it, they pretty much do it right, like the Elastic Audio. They, they were late mm -hmm. with that. They were late with the clip gains. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, um, well, and Pro Tools was really designed for mixing and for tracking, right? right. And, and that's, it does those things very well. Exactly. If, that, if that's all you use it for, then more power to you. That's great. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I mean, everything, everything has a, has a reason. I mean, like Mixcraft. Okay. A lot of people who use like really nice DAWs and big expensive things, they kind of look down at Mixcraft because it's like 99 bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever. But Mixcraft has this incredible on-demand sample and loop library. And I told people it's the cheapest needle drop music library you'll ever find and the most versatile. Mm -hmm. Because if, if, you need, if you need to put together a, 
a bossa nova thing for a travel agency 60 second spot mixed craft is going to do it faster than anything else especially if you then have to turn around and do a scene where the detective walks into a club and there's a punk rock band playing something you know it, it's it's great <laughs> that you, yeah you can put you can put together anything in like seconds you know yeah. so yeah. yeah, I mean they they all uh, they all have different things that they do, and I I totally agree. I think it comes down to the train of thought of, you know, in my mind, it's use the tools available to you that you have to achieve the result. You know, in the end of the day, yeah, it's about the journey, but I think in the end of the day, it's about getting the end result. And if if you want to do something and you have the tools that can get you there, you know, don't buy a bunch of things and then not really know how to use them really well. And get distracted by trying to learn something new without knowing what you have. And you know, in the plugin world, it's the same. Like there, I have so many plugins that have been given to me and that I've purchased that I haven't really spent time learning or using. And and I think you know, if I was to go in and try to spend all my hours learning every single one at this point, like I would know all of them kind of half-assed. I you know, I, yeah, but what, I wouldn't make. But but it wouldn't make any difference on the ultimate emotional impact. I mean, you know, but people ask me what's what, you know, what's the, what's the best thing they can do to upgrade their studio. And I, and I, and I joke, but I'm serious when I say write a better chorus, you know, mm, I mean, that's yeah. the cheapest upgrade ever. And yeah. as far as plugins are concerned, and I was talking with one guy who uses studio one and he's like, Oh man, I wish I had a Poltec equalizer in there. You know, I'm going to have to buy a Poltec because you know, I really like the sound of Poltex. Well, I love the sound of Poltex too. I mean, Me I was too. in the studio. Yeah, I was in I was in the studio when they were new. You know, so I mean, I've mm -hmm. I've used them for a long time. Yeah. And I said, you can get a Poltex sound with the equalizer in Studio One. Just lower the cue. And and I showed him. I said, here, look, here's here's what a here's what a curve would look like with a Poltex. Here we can do that same curve with with the CQ. But because mm -hmm. it didn't say Poltex on it, and it didn't have a button <laughs> that said you know presses yeah. for the Poltex sound, yeah. he wasn't analyzing what a Poltex actually does and just saying, oh yeah, of course I can do that. Yeah, you that's know? funny. You, it's funny you say that. I had a similar story where somebody was like, man, I just I need to go out and buy an SSL uh, compressor, and I was like, well, you know that like Ableton's glue compressor is modeling the SSL, right? And they're like, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, you don't need to go out and spend like. You know, a couple hundred dollars on this <laughs> compressor like that's used you could just use this it's given to you it's going to give you a similar end result and you're always off better using the bundled stuff anyway because it's it's that way when the version you know xyz comes out it's still going to be compatible and you know you know it's still going to work with your operating system and that kind of thing like when i use cakewalk I have their their CA2, which is an LA2A compressor type thing. Yeah, and I I love the sound of that thing. But Studio One has one too. So rather than insert the the Cakewalk plugin in Studio One, I just use the one that's in Studio One. And you really can't tell any difference between the two because ultimately, you know, it's the vocal that that you're listening to, not the compressor. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for me personally, when I collaborate with people, I love getting stems. So usually when I'll, I'll have somebody that's a musician kind of start and just record the idea, whatever they're using, and then I'll take those audio, I'll take that audio and I'll chop it up and have fun with it, almost creating a remix out of something that's already existing. I finding having content when collaborating with somebody, like you said, just like recording and coming up with ideas and then taking that somewhere else, but having something to start with rather than just jumping into a studio with a complete blank canvas, having an idea to start with is always something to build off is much easier. Yeah, and you know, it's so far. I mean, I've been talking mostly. It would sound like I'm talking mostly about like conventional songs and guitars and things like that. But 
part of that is is a return to form. I mean, I had an all electronic band back in 1970 called Anomaly, and it was like all just homemade instruments, electronics, patch chords, things like that. Uh, I did the albums with with Linda Cohen, the classical guitarist, with like electronic backgrounds and things like that. So I've done a lot of electronic stuff yeah. in my life, and I've done a lot of the and and the playing with the DJs over in Germany and all that. And that's but that's a very different type of collaboration than songs because with songs you do have somewhat of a structure you can play off of, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I've heard some of your your tracks, and it's very cool stuff. I love the uh, non-conventional approach that we were talking about earlier with you just messing around with that guitar and running it through pitch shifting and all kinds of stuff. I think that just makes for an original sound, and it, I just I think it's fun. I love what I've been hearing, and... I'm stoked to hear more of your music that you're doing in the future. That you were talking about this, uh, what was it, the harpsichord or something like that? that well, that, yeah, that, that those were actually those are the two albums that I did. I, I'm not, I don't have anything planned with her in the near future because oh, okay. like I've moved, okay. I've moved away now. But I, I mean, I probably will at some point. I mean, the thing that interests me right now is I was putting a solo on the "Walking on the Moon" thing, and I'm really getting into sculpting lead guitar solos. Uh, like, for example, there's one part where there's a run of notes and they sort of all mushed together because they were distorted. And I just split the, at the notes, um, added a little decay to them. So now they're all like very distinct and individual. And then the other thing I'm, I, I've gotten into is, is what I call faux feedback, um, which is like I have a note that's, that, that dies out at the end of the solo. And what I did was I took that note, I stretched it out so it was twice as long, bumped it up 19 semitones and then faded in and faded it out. So there's that like feedback whine that comes in yeah, on top of the note. I love that. Yeah. So the, it, it's this, and I also transposed a couple notes so that they mm. would do something a little more interesting melodically. Mm -hmm. um, it's and shifted the timing around a little bit and not always putting it on the beat exactly because if mm. you, you know, if you put it ahead of the beat, it rushes it a little bit get, yeah. and adds to the energy. Oh, that's another thing. Okay. Yeah. So here's, we could go on forever, but here, here's, <laughs> here's something that, that's a really important takeaway for people, which is um, I was talking a lot in my seminars. Oh, the compelling mixes one. That's the one. Yeah, you didn't see that one. Okay, in compelling mixes, I talked a lot about tempo changes. And if you analyze songs from the pre-click era, there were tempo changes for sure, but they weren't really random. And I, I, I put up a uh, screenshot of the, of the tempo track for Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. And what's fascinating about it is the consistency of the tempo variations is uncanny. Um, and the whole thing has a linear speed increase over the course of the song. But every time yeah. it goes into Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, it speeds up, then it comes back down again. But there's a little semi-speed up, a slight dip, and then the major speed up before it says Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. And it's consistent every single time. I mean, uh, the cool. other, another yeah. fascinating one was Pat Benatar, where the tempo basically tracks the pitch of her voice as she sang higher this this tempo would speed up a little bit and when she went down it would slow down and That's there wild. were a lot yeah and it it's not i mean it's not random at all now the problem is that when you do recording to a click it's it's really hard i think i think it's damn near impossible actually to have tempo changes as you're in the process of writing a song on a multi-track project yeah you know, i was gonna say that would be really hard yeah that's the bad news here's the good news so what you can do is when the song is mixed what i do is i take the song i bring it back into studio one which uses you know elastic pro like ableton does and, and cake warping. warping yeah yeah 
And what I'll do is I'll, is I'll make up a fictitious tempo for the file. I'll say, okay, this song is 90 beats per minute or 100 beats per minute or whatever. And then I'll create tempo variations in the tempo track so I can speed up the song and slow down the song mm. uh, just like you would with regular, mm-hmm. as if you'd done it from the beginning. So I'll have that little speed up just before the chorus. I'll have that little speed up just as the guitar solo is getting toward the end. Okay. And it just makes all the difference in the world. When I demoed, I, I just figured this out a while ago. <laughs> so I demoed the the first song where I really had that realized in the Compelling Mixes seminar. I did that in Madison. I did that in Gearfest. I've done that now in, in different places. And at the end of that song, the people burst into applause. This normally doesn't happen when you're just showing an example of something, you know? Yeah. But I'm convinced that those tempo changes made it a much more compelling and emotional experience for people. Hmm. That's really interesting. I'm going to start trying doing some more of that. That's yeah. It's the bouncing out the track and then bringing it back in and doing those tempo variations. That's cool. Cause you're right. I mean, tempo does drive a lot of the energy of the song, which is why you have a lot of bands that want to bump it up two or three BPM when they play live. Well, and, the other thing, the other, but the, other, it's the variations. I mean, yeah, you can speed yeah. it up and that's cool. Well, right. But, but right. But it's, it's, you're creating a journey with the energy levels really at that point. That's exactly. That's so cool. That's great. Now, I if, love that. If you want to hear, if you want to hear that that particular song is the most recent song I posted on my YouTube channel. So if you want okay. to hear what it actually sounds like when applied to like a real world song, it's in there like right now. But from now on, believe me, all my it makes you want to go back and redo every single song I've ever recorded. <laughs> and it know? makes it a nightmare for anybody that wants to remix your song or try to DJ it live. <laughs> well, there's always the version that doesn't have the tempo change. But That's the thing true. is, That's true. but they are subtle. They yeah. are subtle, you know, yeah. and and. They're not at the beginning and end where you're going to do beat matching anyway. Yeah. You know? And, and But I'm also kind of considerate sometimes, like on on Joie, de, on Joie de Vivre, the last cut was actually going to go into something at 133 and the cut was at 122. And over the last 30 or 35 seconds, it sped up literally from 122 to 133. And That's a big jump. It's a huge jump, but you don't feel it. I play it for people and I'm, and, and they're, you you feel it. You don't hear it. You don't say, oh, it's speeding up. You just, all, all of a sudden, you're like getting more excited and you don't know why. <laughs> That's really cool. That's a fun hack. Yeah. That's good stuff. Now, I'll, I'll definitely be playing some more of that in the future. I, I love that idea of doing that. I've done tempo changes, but not gradually like that. It's usually kind of faded with short parts of the song. But- yeah, no, you should, see, you should see the tempo map. for The song I put up there is called My Butterfly. And the, you, you should see the tempo map for it. I mean, we'll, it looks like we'll I mean, include a we'll include a link to that, um, as well as links to your YouTube channel and website in the show notes of this episode. So if you guys are listening right now, uh, go ahead and check out the show notes. You'll see links down there for this. Yeah, I, I can send you a screenshot of the. Uh, I, I can send you a screenshot of the tempo map if you're interested. I think you'd find it interesting. Sure. Yeah, we can include that as well. That would be really cool. Okay. Yeah. Craig, this has been really fun. I've really enjoyed this. Um, yeah, I, I loved what you had to say at your presentation at GearFest. I think you know you have a lot of wisdom that you can share with a lot of people, and you've written some great books. I encourage everybody to check that out. Uh, I, if people haven't subscribed to your blog, people need to do that. Uh, CraigAnderton.com. We'll have a link in the show notes, like I mentioned already. The YouTube channel, definitely check that out. 
Um, and uh, I believe you'll be possibly offering some courses or things in the future. Um, I'm excited. Stay tuned for that, everyone. Yeah, actually, I, I, I have a digital storefront on Reverb.com that's going to go live soon. And one of the things that I'm planning to do in the near future is to do an actual course on recording. Because a lot of people have a hard time getting started with it, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's something that can that can go on, you know, there, there can be a lot of topics that are covered. So, yeah, there's that. But, yeah. the, but as you mentioned, CraigAnderton.com is where you're going to find what's happening. So that's a good place to check out, you know, what, what books are coming out, personal appearances, where I'm going to be in your area, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, stay tuned, everyone. Um, thanks, Craig. This has been great. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you back on the podcast in the future sometime and uh, can stay connected with the future happenings of what you're doing. And thanks again for being here and joining me. And yeah, I look forward to seeing more. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, man. It's a lot. And I hope. I probably ran too long, but hey, no, you can no, edit. You can edit. Not. No, honestly, I could sit here and talk for hours, but I have a meeting, so I have to go. <laughs> but well, there I, you go. But no, I absolutely love chatting with you. And uh, if you ever come to the Indianapolis area, please hit me up and we'll hang out. And I don't know if you're a coffee drinker or not, or we'll find some. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, I have to go through Indianapolis to get to GearFest. Yeah, that's true. I'm, <laughs> down, I'm down the road. You can come hang out at my little, my studio. We'll have a good time. Yeah, Be cool. Great. All right. Well, I really enjoyed this and I hope people get something out of it. Oh, for sure. I know I have and I'm sure everybody else will too. So thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your week. I'll talk to you soon, Craig. Thanks again. Right. right. Thanks. Take care. All right. Take it easy. This podcast is sponsored by liveproducersonline.com, a community of Ableton Live users connecting you to the pros to learn today's music production. 